Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All right. Well, hello, everyone, to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have someone very special. We have a special guest, and uh, I think that this guest is going to be able to provide a ton of value to our listeners today. And based on on the background experience, I mean, we have the one of the co-founders of Yellow Pages, and I think that is going to be very interesting to understand what that process was, and then also to to get some some valuable information as to what are some of the dynamics behind the early stage companies, you know, in terms of product market fit and other important uh, uh, issues that uh, startups really need to nail it uh, on. So with that being said, uh, Dane, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. So I wanted to ask you, just to get started here, how, how did you get started with Yellow Pages? What was the story behind? Well, there's it, 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 it jumps a lot of, uh, a lot of time. And, I was raised in a small business. My dad ran a small business. I ran small businesses. When I decided uh, to get a suit and tie job, which was uh, my start was with Shearson Lehman Brothers, um, I was in the retail side. And what was important, through talking you know, times that span from the 60s through the 80s, uh, the issue was that uh, you know, the Wall Street side or the big company side had big budgets for advertising and little businesses had yellow pages. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was with Merrill Lynch, you know, the bull in the China shop was out of, out of wall street and we had yellow pages and it really sort of focused to where in fact, yellow pages became uh, at the time it was as much, it was like a credit reference. If you weren't in yellow pages um, often consumers didn't even think that you were a real deal. So that rolled into the mid-90s when I was opening a a new division for Sutro and Company based in San Francisco, another uh, New York Stock Exchange firm. And uh, Sprint came to me, who was the dominant uh, Yellow Pages, the incumbent Yellow Pages provider in the Las Vegas area, and told me, well, you know, we need your ad copy by Friday. And I was unable to do that because we didn't have a commitment on our lease. And I told them, well, we'll just get it next time. And they said, no, no, it'll be a year from now. Well, that was going to be a problem for us. So we did go at risk. We were able to close that up. But that was the moment when I was on the phone with a friend of mine who became my co-founder and just said, you know, this is crazy. It was a month after Yahoo had gone public. You still had, you had eBay, but Amazon was still a glimmer in everybody's eye. There was no such thing as Google or Facebook or any of that. This is, this is a great use for the Internet. And, and I had uh, AOL at the time. I flipped around and searched, and, you know, there was no yellowpages.com. Right. Uh, it, it, this is one of the greatest brands. It was 120 years old. The, the telcos had just, you know, burned that into everybody's mind. They thought they had brand, but what the users and the advertisers thought it was, was Yellow Pages. So um, a third person who was a co-founder that exited pretty quickly um, actually got on the phone, came back to us and said, look, I found this secret organization. They control all the URLs. Well, he'd found what was then 
uh, network solutions or, or the Internet. And his great value was that he was willing to stay on hold for seven hours to get the registration. The URL had actually been uh, had been registered before, but somebody went in default on it. So we picked it up. We were in the business for one hundred and thirty two dollars and and we had no idea what we were doing. So uh, we built the first search engines by hand by working at night. We all kept our day jobs. We worked at night. We called, we sold. And about two years later, I was able to attract an outside investor. Um, we'd gone to all the telcos, and the telcos themselves had said, yeah, now we've got our own brand. The Internet will never be anything. And I always find that laughing. Um, right. But in 1998, we were able to attract a serious investment. Well, I wasn't interested in leaving Sutro, so we hired a CEO, and uh, then a, another company, a, a newly formed entity who was trying to be like an internet capital group or a CMGI, approached us and acquired a controlling interest in Yellow Pages. Um, they did it for paper. Um, notes to be paid within three years. Uh, we had it valued by, uh, I believe it was PWC, and they came up with a, you know, a value in '98 that was just anybody's guess. Right. And um, so we had sort of muddled along. I left Sutro uh, about a year later and actually joined that other company, joined the uh, the incubator as the. Uh, Managing Director of Corporate Development. So I did all the M&A work. And then everything hit the fan in 2000. Um, no, you know, nobody could get any money. The, uh, the incubator was out of money. And Yellow Pages was sitting there as its most valuable asset. But then they owed the original founders a significant uh, amount of money. So we went to them, tore up the paper, took the company back. And we were, you know, this is June of 2000. Uh, the original $5 million we had raised was gone. There was another $2 million in outstanding debt, and we weren't going to be able to make payroll. Right. And they were getting ready to shut our servers off. So I went to my uh, original investor and, uh, again, a high net worth individual in Las Vegas, and he agreed to recapitalize the company with us. And that was really uh, the turning point, obviously. Um, it, it, you know, pretty simple business model at the get-go at the face, and that was, you, know, you got, it was an ad. It was just like the Yellow Pages. Um, it was, uh, you pay for placement, you pay for priority, you pay for ex other um, categories. And then the underlying we had is we were starting some of the first e-commerce at a very local level. So we had store builders and shopping carts and the like um, built in. We had diversified it to include travel because we saw users were using it to find travel. Um, you, at the same time, Expedia was just getting started. So we had a lot of different opportunities that we were that we were choosing through there. Got it, got it. I mean, at the time, obviously, there was none of the, um, you know, helpful resources that we see now, like uh, Yelp or, you know, even Expedia, the one that you were mentioning. I mean, those companies are massive today. So, yeah, no, very, very interesting. So, uh, so you were mentioning, so at the beginning, you guys were three co-founders. Is that right? Yeah, three co-founders. Um, two of us, uh, two of us 
were there from the beginning to the end. The first, the third one, uh, we, you know, it was painful, but we had to exit him uh, about 18 months into the original entity. Is what it is. This is, you know, picking your co-founders very, very carefully is important. Of course. I mean, I know that well. You know, after building Co-Founders Lab, we were very much present to the fact that 64% of companies fail because of co-founder issues. So, you know, fortunately, many, many people have to deal with it. You know, many people also go to business for the wrong reasons with the wrong people. And it's just part of the journey. Yeah, it's exactly. I mean, it, 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 I find it, I find this where, where companies are reaching out to people they don't know and said, would you be a co-founder? Is 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 very difficult for me to understand. It's it, they don't know them well. You've got to understand who the co-founder is and why they're there. And the investors have to understand because if you get hit by a truck, your co-founders need to be able to pick up the ball and run with it. Yeah. So I mean, I imagine that for for Yellow Pages at the time that you guys that you went to your to your investor and and you were looking at the possibility of recapitalizing the company. There had already been quite a fair amount of money that was uh, invested in the business. So I guess, like, what was what was the process of of being able to buy that back and convince some of the folks that were already in the equity to 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 be able to make that transaction happen? Well, so we were uh, we were pretty closely held. Um, there were about six of us that held equity at the time. The uh, original investor still held direct equity and then held equity in the um, in the entity that had acquired a f the 50% ownership. Um, so we didn't, it wasn't as complicated to get it recapitalized. It just was somewhat painful because like I said, we originally raised 5 million. It went away under the, under this, uh, this other entity. Yeah. Um, they burned through two more million, which was outstanding liabilities. And we needed another 5 million to put on. So now we went from 5 million to 12 million in some of the worst valuation op opportunity times uh, or times, uh, you know, of the Internet days. That was, got it, got it. You know, the whole dot bomb thing. Even today, if uh, today you could get you would be treated much better in that situation than any uh, any entity could in 2000. Got it. So I guess the um, what was the total amount that was raised the during the entire life of the company, thing. Um, we were we raised thirty two and a half million total, and used about twenty seven and a half million. Got it. So walk us through the uh, through the cap table. Was that a blend of uh, strategic institutionals, or how did you structure that? Well, so we spent a lot of time out uh, pitching. Our best opportunity actually was with Kleiner Perkins. And then the entity uh, that acquired the 50% got involved and screwed things up. Um, right. Kleiner was the first one that, that, that didn't have the, well, Yahoo's going to put you out of business. Uh, once, we, once we got tired of that one, they started with the Google's going to put you out of business. So at the end of the day, Yellow Pages just wasn't sexy. So Silicon Valley was not our source. We, so we were... We were using very high net worth people. And by very high net worth people, our investor was a billionaire before anybody knew what a billionaire really was. So uh, we're, we would go out, we would put together the plan, we would go see Silicon Valley, we would 
go see people not in Silicon Valley, New York and, and in Boston as well. Um, we would bring back a couple of term sheets and my investor would look at me and say, OK, I'll cover to those terms. What he was really doing was forcing us to go out and get a uh, you know, valuation validation so that he was comfortable that he wasn't overpaying because it wasn't his area of expertise. He was in real estate. Yeah. Um, so as it ended up at, at, at the time we sold, he was the only outside investor. Got it. I mean, that seems like a, quite a, a, a big of an amount of money back then. I mean, now we're seeing that rounds are becoming bigger and bigger. But back then, I mean, that was a really, really big amount. So I guess, uh, Dane, from, from doing that uh, specific uh, kind of capital raise, what, what was your biggest learning? Well, so, so you know, to, to address that, because here's the luxury that um, particularly uh, heavy tech-related companies do, is our first five million, a million and a half of that went into technology. We had to buy servers. Oracle was charging $80,000 a year. Microsoft was charging us $32,000 per server. We had four, we had uh, uh, quad processor servers on the front end. I mean, this was, this was a day when you just poured money to, into keeping the site running. And today with AWS and with Azure and with anything, with Google, with Google Cloud, Businesses that are starting today just don't grasp exactly how capital efficient those things are. Our biggest learning in those days was I didn't have, and I really have no excuse for this, but I didn't have the best uh, execution plan in place. And among those things was I should have hired my CFO first. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is something I run into a lot of in my practice, and that's uh, companies that are out there with, uh, you know, they're tech heavy. They've got a lot of um, brilliant minds who've written some incredible software, but they've got no financial controls. They don't understand accounting. There has been no corporate governance put into place. And those are things that lead you alive. They, they, I've watched them. I've watched those things kill financings. So first level there. Second is make sure the person that you're in the um, the the trench with your co-founder is a real co-founder. Um, Bill Pavandra, who's subsequently retired, lives in Havasu, Arizona, buys and sells exotic cars, loving life as it is. He and I had each other's back, but we had each other's back before we started Yellow Pages, before we were involved with it. So being a co-founder is something more than here's a title and here's a few points of um, potential equity. This is I can't I can't say enough about it. It, it, If if what you're doing is hiring a co-founder because you think somebody wants you to have a co-founder and you're giving them nothing to the extent it makes it look like they're just an employee, don't waste your time because the investors aren't going to look at them as a co-founder either. And I think the third thing is getting out of your own head. We made some strategic revenue errors, and by we, I mean me. I had a vision, mission, ambition for Yellow Pages. We learned to brand like crazy. 
branding isn't a logo. Branding is not advertising. Brand is, branding is the DNA of how you operate a company. Uh, the errors we made was we stuck to our model when the market was saying you could do something different. And we gave up a ton of revenue. Um, we should have been an affiliate with every one of the telcos because they were paying everybody for traffic. I could have given them traffic, generated revenue. Um, we had customers who were telling us they wanted to look up residential. And I going, yeah, no, that's white pages. That's not yellow pages. And finally, reaching out to them, they said, look, you're stupid. It isn't about white pages, yellow pages. It's the we want to go to one place and find this stuff. So those are really the three key issues that I've learned. Got it. So I guess that the, obviously when you were raising all that big of an amount of money, you know, I guess that the, there was some expectations to, to reach at some point a liquidity event. So my question is, were you always, was it always the plan to really sell the business down the line? And, and what were really the triggers to go after an acquisition here? So, um, no, the answer was we were pretty open on an exit. The, um, we built the company so, uh, one of the mistakes that I see is that people build a company to be acquired. If there's nobody acquiring, then you, your company's going to fail. But if you build it to be profitable and it, it can be acquired or it can, or it doesn't have to be. So we built a company to be profitable. And in our last year of operation, we were doing around 13, 14 million dollars in revenue. We were profitable. We would have grown pretty rapidly at that point. Um, because we were finally generating cash. And the, the, the exit came, um, as a total surprise to us. Now, timing was probably pretty good. It's 2004. Yeah. A little, a little company over in Mountain View, Google, was <laughs> getting ready to take the cover off the ball on local and local search. So they, I'd like to say that it was brilliance on our part, but it wasn't. It was just, it was being in the right place at the right time. AT&T finally got really scared of Google. And so they came and brought their checkbook with them. Got it. So I guess, I guess what was that uh, process look like? I mean, walk us through, through how it happened. Yeah, good. The, uh, the process was, uh, AT&T. It, it's what became AT&T. It was actually fronted by Bell South, who I, I had great relationships with all of the telcos. But the Bell South guy and I had the closest relationship. And he called and asked if we would be interested in having a conversation. Um, yeah, of course, you, you never turn that down. We then out of, engaged a, a sell side banker who I had worked with at Sutro and Company. And we started uh, contacting the other competitors in the space. There were uh, about six at that time, and we started an, an auction. We just, you know, the, the board has elected that this is probably the right time to do this. We started an auction process, and we gave everyone 90 days to due diligence. Uh, we were able to keep that incredibly close to the vest so it didn't upset um, all the people. And in the end, it was Bell South and AT&T who just said, we had actually called the Bell South guy and told, we're telling him you didn't win. And he said, that's not an acceptable answer and stayed on the phone with us until we got a price we could live with. 
So I guess I guess during this process, how many of them were very serious about really acquiring the company? Seven of them. Seven of them. Got it. And how how did you keep um, with the investors that you already had in in the cap table? Like how did you keep them in the loop? Because I'm sure that you know many times investors have their own interests. So what was your experience with that? <clears throat> well, that was pretty simple because the CFO for my outside investor sat on my board, so he was part of the process, and okay. it was it was good timing for him as well. I mean, he, again, he had twenty seven and a half million in. Because he stuck with us during the really ugly 2000s, dug us out of a hole, he had the overwhelming amount of the equity. So however this was going to work, he was gonna, it, it was going to work for him first. And, it, and he had all preferred equity, and we had all um, common, the management. So, so when you were receiving all these uh, different term sheets and, and interested parties, I mean, from all these seven guys, I mean, were you – like, how did you, like, come down to, to that alignment in terms of valuation? I mean, was there, like, a minimum price that you guys internally were shooting for? What was driving that? I mean, what was behind valuation for you guys? Yeah, we had just been out trying to raise another round um, in face of the Google threat. And we had some pretty good feedback from the street on it. Um, our pre-money valuation at that round was 100, and we were looking to raise between 20 and 30. And we were getting, you know, very positive response. It was when we started looking at the numbers and what the dilution was going to be to the management team and to the founding team and realizing just how deep that hole would go for us to come back to come back even was part of the decision that maybe it was time to not raise that capital and instead look for an acquisition or look to be acquired. So we knew from the street about what we were worth. We knew from the street because of some pretty well understood metrics about our traffic. 96% of all of our users were primary and organic. We didn't pay for traffic. We didn't, there was no SEO, SEM in those days. Um, we had an incredibly loyal user base that grew between six and 10% a month. And we did that only because, Alejandro, we, we were rabid and violently user focused. And so that's how the valuations came in. When you, when you're running 22 million users and uh, in any given month, and you're the number one on everybody's mobile deck, even before smartphones, um, there was a pretty good valuation um, metrics involved. So what was the um, what was the timeline from beginning to end, and, and then also at the end, how many, how many users did you have? So um, we started the process in April. We concluded and accepted a deal in September. We still had to keep it quiet because we had to go through uh, trust uh, certification um, to make sure that the uh, the acquiring entity wasn't going to get in, in trouble there. And at the end, so we closed the deal middle of November of 2004. At the end, we had 22 million users, of which 10% were off mobile. Okay. And we were doing roughly 40 million searches per month, uh, all against local. 
Got it. Got it. So I guess if if uh, if you could go back in time and and give advice to to your younger self uh, in right before heading into the into the M and A process, what what would you say to yourself? Um, I would. So. I've had this conversation a number of times with myself. Uh, part of part of the issue part of the issue with the M and A process, we were doing extremely well, uh, but we were doing well after a trigger event sometime in two thousand and three, and that. So the first advice to myself was stop being intimidated by big multinational companies with huge checkbooks, particularly when the last innovator died there a hundred years before. I, for whatever reason, well, because of that, I guess, was for for the first two and a half years that I was actually the CEO after we reacquired the company, um, I was pandering to the telcos because you just pandered to the telcos. These guys were doing 30 billion a year in revenue on an aggregate basis in just yellow pages, of which it was 90% profit margin to them. So they had to do something right, right? At the end of the day, no, that wasn't true. Um, It wasn't until mid-2000, and I can't even recall what triggered it, when I just, I finally said, you know what, stop this. And we started calling them out. We started calling them out, getting into their face, not rudely, not obnoxiously, but we started pointing out to the street that we were getting, because of our user experience, what they were paying $50 million a year for, we were getting for free. So we were smarter about it, and we understood, and they didn't. And, and today, they still don't. Um, right. The second is that I should have been more militant in the acquisition process. My board, really good, well-intentioned people. None of them did the day-to-day work. None of them understood the difficulty in doing this. And I let them more uh, handle that whole process. And I should have been more active in that. So those are my two pieces. Got it. So the uh, the total amount of the transaction was a uh, 100 million. So yeah. was that the cash or was there any vesting in there, earnout? So what what was that? No, it was all cash. Um, and they acquired the company, which was one of the things I did push. First, they wanted to do an asset sale, but an asset sale would have just beat us up on taxes. So by forcing them to acquire the company, uh, we got the most favorable tax treatment. They did hold back 10% of the proceeds for two years um, in an escrow fund against undisclosed liabilities, but that's pretty normal. Yeah. Um, but it was all cash. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, we, even, we even offered to let them pay in stock, and AT&T had no interest in that. Got it. So I guess uh, once the sale was done, you know, you have been very much active with uh, with other boards, and there is a lot of people that are listening probably right now, and and they're in the process of really putting together their corporate structure. So, I guess from from what you've seen and what you have experienced, what makes a a good board of directors for an early stage company? Well, so it's not a group of people that think just like you. In fact. It's a group of people that doesn't think like you, but you all need to have some level of understanding of the business. 
And and what I mean by that is I've seen boards. Uh, I actually took a CEO role, you know, much much like you, where after after a quote retirement after ninety days, I finally said oh, I can't do this anymore. And so I took a CEO role where uh, the five member board were all founders. They were all technologists. I wasn't on the board. And so we had no diversity. There was, uh, you know, I, I I was going in to assist them to convert some device-driven stuff to local uh, local advertising, directory-driven advertising. None of them had that experience, but the board was people with a technology background, and they didn't understand that. So from a board perspective, you've got to have diversity. Um, I also believe that the CEO crucially must always be on the board. Makes so sense. if you bring in an outside CEO, carve a seat for him. Um, and, the, you know, some of that, some of them is absolutely just the math, but it bears, bears mentioning boards always need to be an odd number of people and not a number of odd people, but an odd number of people. Um, I tried to help a company uh, as a consultant about a year, year and a half ago, they had a four-person board. And it, 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 that's crazy. So my best advice when you get, if a, if, if a startup wants is to get with somebody who's got a corporate governance understanding and have them guide you through the process. Have them help you find the right board members. Have them help you understand where you've got strengths, but you've got some weaknesses. Often the weaknesses are sales and marketing. Um, again, in this day and age, we see so many companies that are started by really, really smart technologists, but they're not sales and marketing guys. Get somebody on your board who understands that process. So, Got um, it. Yeah, that's that makes a total sense. I guess that one of the other things, Dane, that you're probably seeing at a, at a board level when you're providing that a strategic perspective, you know, either as a director or perhaps as an advisor, I'm sure that you see a lot of these companies struggling to really achieve a product market fit, either either because the market is turning around on them or because maybe like they're doing something that the market is not not ready for or doesn't really want or need. So, so what does really product market fit look like, Dane? Well, so. Again, I, I want to defer to some, some some incredible people who write a lot of really cool code because I couldn't do that if I if it if my life depended on it. So I'm giving them the credit. But the issue is, product market fit starts before you light, uh, do a line of code. Just because you think there's a problem to solve doesn't mean the market thinks there's a problem to solve. Yellow Pages was easy for us because it had been around for 125 years, for God's sake. So it wasn't. I didn't have to create a market there. So I can I can say that with perfectly aligned self-interest there. The issue, though, is, or enlightened self-interest, the issue with today is you can build an app, you can build a, a, a SaaS, you can do this. The, the product market fit is is not just who is it you – what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Is it big enough to solve before you spend any time on the code? Um, because pushing a rope uphill is not going to work. Just because you've created something doesn't mean there is fit. Second is being smart enough to understand or being on top of it enough, not smart enough, but being being aware enough of who you're solving it for. 
hate to be this way because it's the easy answer, but if you don't have an enterprise option to you, you're going to have a tough time. You might start out at a B2C level on software or as an app, but there needs to be an enterprise version because these are the people who make the uh, the professional investors really excited. Um, yeah. So very, very, very interesting. I mean, you know, there is a this individual called Sean Ellis. He um, he's the founder of this thing called Growth Hackers, and and basically he did a presentation where he said that a good way to understand if you have product market fit or not is to survey your users and see if at least 60% or more would be very disappointed if they could no longer use your product. And if that is not the case, then you need to go back to the whiteboard. What, what do you think about that? You know, I think that's I, – I, is it 60? Yeah, probably. I, it, I guess that's sort of what, how big is the sample size. If I've got 100,000 users – uh, and 30,000 want to use them, I'm probably okay. But the issue is, is it, but early on, um, I think that's exactly the the way you have to do it. And I, and I, and you have to talk to these people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. When we, we didn't let that go, we didn't let that go at Yellow Pages. We actually had our user group. We had advertiser group. We had a user group and they were people that we would rotate through and we would ask them what they wanted, what they thought about. Um, if you don't have, and I, and I don't care if you are in an enterprise or in a B2C, uh, you need to have a user group. Got it. So. Got it. Makes sense. And the, uh, one of the things that, that you have this expertise on that it's something very complex and very difficult when it comes to building companies is, is really building a marketplace. I mean, I, I remember at least from my experience during these uh, past 10 years that I have been building marketplaces. I mean, it's, it's really like launching two companies at the same time, and it's painful. But but what, what would be your piece of advice to all the listeners that are in the process of uh, launching a marketplace? You mean when, once I laugh and say, God, I'm glad I'm not having to do that again? I mean, I'm sitting here right. and you're going, it's, that is, it's one of the – you're absolutely right. It's two businesses. And the businesses are in direct conflict with each other. One side wants the most for the least, and the other one wants the least for the most. And so upshot of it is you've got to vote with the users. It, 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 we did this with Yellow Pages. We did, I, I did it a couple of more times, and the issue is this. Advertisers will always show up where users are. Users will not always show up where advertisers are. So take take that and change it to a tangible marketplace. Buyers show up, uh, sellers will show up where buyers are and buyers will not always show up where sellers are. We've had that time and time and time again. Big marketplaces, lots of product and nobody shows up to the party. Yeah. So when, and you've got to have advocates inside for both sides. And that's what we did. We had the user advocate. We had the advertiser advocate. And they've got to be at odds with each other. And then when it comes down to you as the CEO, you must always decide what's in the best interest of the user because they're the people, to your point earlier about the 60%, if, if they can't, if, if they can live without you, they're going to go find someplace else. Yeah. I mean, I, I do agree, Dane. I think that 
liquidity is king when it comes to marketplaces and being able to find what you're looking for in a very short period of time. So um, I completely, completely agree there. I guess, uh, you know, like now we see like a ton of marketplaces that are burning through tons of cash. So do you have any, any thoughts around growth versus profit? Um, I'm, yeah, I, I grow, but don't be stupid about growth. And what I mean by that is I, I would have called this market different, the, the financial market's different two years ago after the election, and I've been nothing but wrong, but eventually I'm going to be right. I, I lived through two really black swan events, the NASDAQ crash in 2000 and 9-11. I watched more companies with incredible business models get written off because when people fly airplanes into buildings, all the term sheets get pulled. So grow, use what I would call the Amazon model, which is grow at all costs, but understand where you can cut if you have to get profitable fast. Uh, people have criticized Amazon's growth their, their, or their narrow profit line for, you know, as long as they've been around. But the reality is if they tomorrow stop their R&D, they'd be putting $20 billion on the bottom line. That's the kind of growth they have to do it. But if, you're, if your growth model is absolutely dependent on getting the next round of financing in and you have no way to get profitable, um, I think you're, you're asking for trouble under this sort of uh, economic scenario. We're going to eventually hit a recession. The VCs that are out there, as you and I both know, Alejandro, are just they're doing they're doing bigger rounds, not smaller rounds. But that's not what the profile of the smaller of the new startups are. Um, VCs sitting on a ton of cash aren't going to come to the rescue of a million dollar investment um, if if things go sideways. So I. Uh, so the answer is, I think you do both. You vote, you you build for growth, but have your plan on how to be profitable or at least break even, so that you can weather the storm. Because the bad times don't last that long. Yeah, I mean, I think that with the with going with growth, the the issue is that just like you say, I mean, you're you're always one round of financing away from going out of business, and it's very very risky. And unfortunately, you don't get to control your own destiny, and you're always controlled by investors, either existing ones or the ones that are potentially going to finance your next, your next round. So, Dane, this has all been very go, – go ahead, Dane. I was, was going to say just one, one other thought, and this is something that I run into a lot with, with the companies that I try to deal with or try to work with, and that is I hear a lot of – I see a lot of people who've crowned themselves CEO because either they were the first in or all of that. But the one thing that the people that I've seen companies not grasp, and it goes to this issue of financing, is the CEO has one job, and that's to make sure nobody runs out of money. There, th think of them as the parents in the house who's responsible to make sure that there's a paycheck. So if you wake up one morning and you think you want to be CEO, but you don't think you're really good at raising money, you better find somebody who's good at raising money because that's your job. Never let people run out of money. And that's going to be either constantly on the road, constantly on the road show, 
and on top of that, understanding the business so that you can build the break-even model that you can move to quickly. So anyway, that was my, that was my my hot button, my CEO hot button. Got it, got it. So well, thank you for for all of this, Danny. It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, what what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out to you and if they want to say hi? It's uh, it's real easy. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Dane Madsen. I'm uh, or you can just send me an email at dane at danemadsen.com. Or my personal favorite is Co-Founders Lab. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm very, uh, very glad to hear that, Dane. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Dane. Really appreciate it. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Have a great day. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.